the thing is, you know, bias, I talk about this in the book as well, is, is like a bullet train. If we don't interrupt it, it will go where it has always gone. It will pick up who it has always picked up, you know, and it will ignore those it has always ignored. And so we, we have to stop some of these processes in their tracks and ask new questions, right? And incorporate new ideas and bring up new people. That's the only way we're going to shift the conversation from it essentially just being based in people's gut instincts. Welcome to You Belong in the C-Suite podcast. You are ambitious in life and in your career, but something is missing. You want to bring more of your passion to what you do, because let's be honest, you pour a ton into your work and it needs to mean more. I'm your host, Laura Eigel. I'm a mom, wife, PhD, coach, advocate, introvert, and indoor rowing fanatic. I'm passionate about living a life that's in line with my values. We'll give you the actionable tips and tools you need to lead with your values, make a difference, and have career success. The world needs more diversity and authenticity in the top jobs at organizations. Your leadership belongs there. You belong in the C-suite. Hi there, friends. My first book, Values First, How Knowing Your Core Beliefs Can Get You the Life and Career You Want, is now out in the world. Thank you so much for your support of the book. With your help, we are a number one Amazon bestseller in the business ethics category and a number one new release for time management and business and business etiquette. I have poured my heart into this book with personal stories and stories for my coaching clients using the values first framework. Between the constant pressure of job performance and demands on your time, it's easy to lose sight of your values letting them shift out of alignment. Those simple misalignments are keeping you from feeling joyful and fulfilled. Learn how to recenter your life and career around what truly matters to you. Order Values First now at your favorite independent bookstore or at Barnes & Noble or Amazon. I wanna make sure that you are the first to know about every book activity that we have in store, including virtual and in-person events. Stay up to date by joining our list at thecatchgroup.com slash values first. That's thecatchgroup.com slash values first. Welcome to the You Belong in the C-Suite podcast. I am so excited for you to hear my discussion with our guest, Tara J. Frank. Tara J. Frank is an equity strategist who has advised and educated thousands of Fortune 500 executives across multiple industries and large member organizations. Her work, fueled by a deep belief in the creative power and potential of every one, focuses on building bridges between people, ideas, and opportunity. Before founding her culture and leadership consultancy, Tara spent 21 years at Hallmark Cards, where she served in multiple executive roles, including vice president, Creative Writing and Editorial, Vice President, Business Innovation, Vice President, Multicultural Strategy, and Corporate Culture Advisor to the President. In her book, The Waymakers, Clearing the Path to Workplace Equity with Competence and Confidence, it's an invitation to all people with power and position to open doors, remove barriers, and facilitate access and opportunity for those who have been historically denied. 
Tara resides in Dallas, Texas with her husband and two of their six children and their three dogs. She's a proud Spelman alumna and member of the Executive Leadership Council, Network of Executive Women, Delta Sigma Theta Sorority Inc., and recently named a 2022 Success 125 honoree by Success Magazine and is listed among Core Magazine's 100 Most Influential Blacks in 2022. You all know that I read a lot. And this book, The Waymakers, I have dog-eared so many pages. It isn't funny. It is so good and so actionable. Whether you are a leader in a Fortune 50 organization or a new manager or don't even have any direct reports, if you are a seasoned HR professional or if you're just starting out your career, you will learn so much from this book. In our discussion, Tara and I talked about what it means to be a waymaker, where bias hides in organizations within feedback, training and development, and talent and succession planning. We talked about how important it is for people with power in an organization to give others without the power more insight, access, and opportunity. Specifically, we peeled back the layers to give more insight on the talent planning process and what happens in those succession planning conversations and how important it is to interrupt bias in those rooms. We also talked about sponsorship and mentorship at the individual and organizational level. And we talked about the boundaries that you need as a waymaker and boundaries that Tara has successfully utilized in her consulting work. Let's get started. Well, I want to welcome you to the You Belong in the C-Suite podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. I love the title of your podcast. Thank you. Yeah, we, we're excited to have you here. I'm a fan of the book. I want to jump into it. But before we do, I'd love for you to tell the audience a little bit more about you and your story. Thank you, first of all, about the book. Everybody asks me about my story and, you know, lately it's, what's your origin story, et cetera. As you can imagine, the story is pretty expansive, but I will try to truncate it. Uh, I now am really focused on leadership and culture consulting, right? That's kind of the way I think about it. Um, since writing The Waymakers, I've been wholly focused on leadership capacity building doing a little bit less of that comprehensive, you know, diversity, equity, and inclusion strategy, and just more focusing on helping high-level leaders um, all the way down through middle managers, and honestly, you know, allies, individual contributors, figure out what it looks like in real time uh, to lead more equitably and inclusively. But before that, I spent 21 years at Hallmark Cards, uh, I started my career as a greeting card writer, which people always find fascinating. And then I kind of grew up relatively quickly, you know, into leadership at Hallmark. I became a manager of people at 25 years old. I was promoted into executive leadership at 29. I led creative writing and editorial for a bit. I led business innovation. I designed and stood up a multicultural center of excellence, which was really an embedment arm designed to help all of our consumer facing divisions better understand how America was changing uh, and then create solutions to meet those emerging needs. And my last role at Hallmark was as corporate culture advisor to the president and the CEO. 
And then I decided to kind of start my own firm so that I could initially focus on leadership development. Uh, and when I say that, I mean really with an emphasis on women and people of color. What I learned relatively quickly is that in many cases, the women and the, the black and brown people it, total didn't necessarily need to be developed. They needed to be better understood, uh, more respected, more enabled, right? And essentially more supported. Uh, and so once those themes started popping for me pretty powerfully, I shifted my focus from trying to develop the people who need more support to developing people who need to give more support. And that's really where I find myself today. I love that difference right there that you just described. I think that's a that's a knee-jerk reaction of so many companies, right? Um, yes. You've seen it. It's, oh, let's uh, let's have another group. Let's have another program for these for, for this group or for that group, this marginalized group, when really it's the people that are all around them that really need the focus. Right. They need the development. It's I know you have the book, so um, I want to be redundant for you, but I know people who are listening may not have read the book yet. You know, I talk in the book about the power core, right? How in any given entity, you have people in power and the people in power in corporate America anyway, tend to be mostly white and male. Well, in the power core is pretty much everything you need to have a successful career, right? The insight is in the middle uh, of the power core, you know, those unwritten rules and stakes in the ground, et cetera. The access is in there, right? To the power networks and the knowledge centers. And then the opportunity is in there, those big client projects, right? Those important bodies of work, those promotions, et cetera. And the more different you are from the people in power, the further removed you are from that insight, that access and that opportunity too. So when we say we want to develop, right? Let's say black women, for instance, who are um, among those most removed, right? From the power. When we say we want to develop them and we want to create a program, if we don't design that program to provide insight and access and opportunity, it's not a good program, right? It doesn't give them what they really need to be successful, which are, you know, in my experience, those three things. I really love how you described it in that book. And I love the action oriented everything in this book. I feel like way making it's a verb, right? Like you are yes. doing things, right? And and if you're doing it, you are sharing insight, you are sharing access, you are sharing opportunity and everything that you do. Um, can you give us a definition of waymaker for the Yes, audience? absolutely. So I love the way you just described it too. You know, waymaking is a verb. Uh, it is an active way of leading that recognizes that not everyone has um, access to the same opportunities. Uh, Waymakers open doors, right? They remove barriers and they usher people through to greater levels of contribution. When I was writing the book, I had this realization that every black and brown person I know who has made it to the top of their game, however they define that, has done so not just because they're brilliant, you know, and accomplished, but because someone made a way for them, 
someone took enough of an interest right in them, someone believed in their potential, someone uh, made a conscious choice, right, to open that door and to, to move the things out of the way that had been holding them back and take them by the hand and walk with them through that door. And, and in my opinion, we need more of those way makers. It's, it's great to be an ally, but increasingly, if you ask me, people are associating allyship with uh, cheerleading in a sense, you know, with encouraging and clapping from a distance. And I keep reminding people that it, that's not what we need. We, we don't need cheerleading and encouraging and clapping from a distance. We need people to get into this arena with us, right? And do the things that only they can do to open those doors and, and to provide the air cover, right? As we learn and grow so that we can, we can really thrive. Yeah, I love that you describe that as air cover and you do it at multiple different points in the book. And I'd love to dig into a couple specific points if that's okay with you. Sure. You talked about where bias hides. So I'd love to dig in a little bit to this idea of where does bias hide in training and development in happy hour and in succession planning. Can we talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. Bias is one of those things. It's interesting when people reach out to me and, and they say, can you do some unconscious bias training for us? I say, no, it's not really what I, that's not really what I do. You know, for me, I've seen so many instances where people are doing training uh, and they're describing what bias is. They're describing the 52,000 types of bias, but people can still leave those conversations, not really being able to recognize it when it shows up or not knowing where to look for it mm -hmm. <laughs> in order to mitigate it. So that particular part of the book was my way of trying to make the bias conversation more actionable. And to your point, yeah, bias hides in, you know, succession planning. I tell a story in the book and, and I know you saw it where I was in a succession planning meeting. I was the only, you know, person of color in that succession planning meeting. There used to be a time when we took significant, right, uh, time to succession plan. You know, I remember in the beginning, we would take an entire day, two days to succession plan. And then everything and everyone tried to just be more efficient, try to streamline everything so we could do more with less. And, and we ended up simplifying what was a two-day process to, you know, a few hours at a time. So in doing that, you have to put some rules in place, right, that allow you to maximize that time. And we said, well, we're just going to talk about the top 10 people on this list. Um, that's what we have time for. So I sat in there in the succession planning discussion, and we talked about the top 10 people on the list, and I participated, you know, fully. And then when we were done, I said, now I'd like to talk about X person, Y person, and Z person. And so my peers were like, well, we said we were going to only talk about the top 10 people on the list. I said, these top 10 people on the list have been the top 10 people on the list for the last three years. We're not having any conversation about the unusual suspects. And I want to talk about this person because I remember a time when we said that she had high potential. She had great energy. We thought she could be a leader and no one has mentioned her name in a full year. And I want to know why. And that was one of those things where it was a moment of intervention, right, that allowed us to kind of interrupt that bias train. The, the thing is, you know, bias, I talk about this in the book as well, is, is like a bullet train. 
if we don't interrupt it, it will go where it has always gone. It will pick up who it has always picked up, you know, and it will ignore those it has always ignored. And so we, we have to stop some of these processes in their tracks and ask new questions, right? And incorporate new ideas and bring up new people. That's the only way we're going to shift the conversation from it essentially just being based in people's gut instincts. So that's just one example. And I love that example. And it's so tangible and and how you can interrupt these processes. Can we provide to your point of like giving people insight? I'm a seasoned talent management professional. So I know what it's like to be in those rooms. I've sat in those rooms. I've had conversations. I've helped build profiles of the high potentials that we're going to talk about. But I don't think everybody has been in those rooms or to your point, the room is smaller or the room is it's just not as long as it was before. Mm-hmm. So the idea of, you know, you used to have a whole day or two days of talent planning. Can we talk about what do you what did you love about those days? What do you, what are you actually doing in a room as a leader talking talent? And then we can kind of talk about like what are the places to kind of interrupt to. Yeah. So such a good question. You know, I, I think every company does it a little bit differently, but essentially it's first defining the universe of opportunity, right? Like leaders in those rooms or on those teams usually first define the universe of opportunity. What are the roles in our organization? Uh, which roles are are likely to become available, right? Over the next year or two years or three years. How do we look at each of these roles and identify a few people who might be right for these roles and right for these roles, right? Right for these roles, as in they have the skills and experience and knowledge, et cetera, behavior, you know, leadership countenance, if you will, to do this role well. And they also are either ready now or ready in one year or ready in two years, right? That's the kind of, those are the kinds of lists you're generating as a leader who's walking into a room like that. And so a lot of times people do that by starting with the role right? Let's talk about this role. Who is on the succession list for this role? Other times they say, bring your top talent into the room and let's talk about each person on this list and which roles they might be, right? Right for and ripe for. So that's the nature of the conversation. And to your point, I mean, bias can hide in almost every single thing I just said. I mean, let's start with how do we define success factors for the role? Oftentimes, our mental model of leadership is based on white men. So if we're defining success factors for a role, certainly there's going to be technical, functional knowledge, et cetera. But we also end up saying things like, you know, well, that's going to be about uh, executive you know, presence. And we need somebody who really can command and control in that role. And we need some, right, things like that, yes. which... Are real problematic for me, but we may unpack that later, or people will just have to read the book to see, you know, what more I have to say about it. So one, in how we define what success looks like for a role, bias can hide there. Two, when you tell people bring your top talent, clearly bias is hiding there. We often define top talent by people who remind us of ourselves. <laughs> yes, yes, we do. Right? Mm-hmm. Like we think we're amazing. 
we think that the school we went to was is fantastic. We think the region of the you know world we grew up in produces the smartest human beings. We think that you know our our educational or experiential background is the very best background for this particular role or type of work. We think that our ENFP or our INTJ way of thinking and approaching problems is the smartest way to approach them, right? We that's how we operate. And so when people remind us of ourselves, we tend to perceive them as the smartest, most capable people. So that's another place bias hides, right? Like it's really throughout the entire process and the more aware we can become of where that bias is hiding, I think we can train ourselves to ask more questions. Why do we believe that? How do we know? What evidence do we have? have we given this person an opportunity yet or not right like that's the process of starting to interrupt it just training ourselves to ask more questions uh, and be a whole lot more curious and i'm sure you've seen so many leaders in these meetings that even just can talk talent really well mm-hmm. and some that can't mm-hmm. and i think that's even a place too like who are we listening to in those rooms how have they been able to talk about talent? How are they talking about talent? What are people resonating with? And Ooh, that I- is such a good point. I didn't even talk about that in the book, and I'm sad that I did not. That You just bring up such a crucial point. Who is the representative right, of the talent? And to what degree do people inherently trust that representative? So whoever they're representing is going to get more points, right? Because of who is is doing the representing. Yeah. And it's very apparent, even in the example that you shared, in that example, you are the only person of color in the room and you were the only person that brought up that question. Mm -hmm. So I love this idea of if you're a way maker, you can show up in that room talking talent and asking these questions because what happens at the ends of at the end of these conversations people get um visibility right mm-hmm. people get opportunity they, they get do sponsors they get promotions they get raises yeah it's where every good it's where all the good stuff is doled out yes i mean it's not the only time it's doled out but it's where so much to your point of the good stuff is doled out because because if we pull that thread further i love that you asked me to unpack what happens in the room because a lot of people really don't know but what happens is if we say you know that laura is a really good candidate for this particular role what somebody might say next is well i don't i think she'll be ready in two to three years but i don't think she's ready now what someone says says next is well how do we get her ready If we believe she has the potential to do that, she has the right skills to do that, but she's not yet ready, what is in the way of her being ready? How do we remove those obstacles on purpose, right? And equip her with whatever it is she's going to need to be ready in two years. That is an intentional, right, focused act of waymaking that not everybody gets to benefit from today. Yeah. And then even more nuanced, Sometimes somebody does not get off that ready in one to two years. Have you seen that? Like, oh, absolutely. Yeah, you've been ready in two years for ten years. Something's <laughs> yeah. not. <laughs> something's yeah. not working. Something's not working. So that's another point of interruption. 
yeah. as a way maker as well. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Are we, you know, some of the questions I've asked in the past is, are our expectations realistic? Are they, you know, specific enough and actionable enough? Are we judging this person for things that are unmeasurable uh, or ambiguous, right? Like we do that a lot of times. Well, we're just, you know, I don't know that they're quite yet demonstrating strategic agility. What in the freaking universe does that mean? Because this person has developed 52 strategies in the last two years. Those strategies have driven business results. So it's working. So when we say they're not strategically agile, what are you really saying? What are the behaviors you need to see, right? And what are the outputs you're looking for? And that's part of powerful way making, right? It's just learning to ask those really specific intentional questions that get people out of this, you know, ambiguous conversation of what a leader is into a, a lot more, you know, specifics. Yeah, I really love that intentionality. So it feels like kind of wherever you are in an organization, you know, bigger organizations obviously have more sophisticated talent management processes and smaller organizations, you might not even be talking talent. Yeah. So we want to be able to meet people where they are, but there's absolutely ways to get incrementally better wherever you are on your talent planning processes by inserting some of these questions that you've outlined. Um, I'd love to get into next, if you don't mind, some of the, as we start having these conversations and then we're starting to give opportunities or programs or investments and development into people, I remember in my personal experience working in different companies, we would on purpose, you know, try and have and develop all of these programs like we talked about just a bit ago. And some of the same people, especially the, the people of color, would start showing up on these lists like, okay, well, we need more people to go to these programs. We have to make sure that we have representation, how many women are going, how many people of color are going. And the same people would be getting picked over and over again. And I think I'd love to talk about, if it's okay with you, this idea of burdening some of these leaders again and again, putting them in these positions where they may not have, they probably don't have the psychological safety in some of these programs. And let me be give an example. We might put somebody in a high potential program where they get increased visibility to leaders, right? Mm -hmm. They, that's an opportunity and you're giving them access. So those three things that you you talked about before, but within it, they still have to show up, right? Because they're being watched. Everybody in that room in a high potential program, they are absolutely being watched. Leaders are looking at them. They're seeing what insights, who's participating, all the things, right? Yep. But I feel like if we're still tapping those same people, we're putting them in these spaces that are potentially not psychologically safe for them. They're having to show up. And then also they have a regular job too. <laughs> like mm -hmm. we've not, we've not decreased any of that stuff. Yeah. So can you talk about how we might think about that in a different way or other things that we can do to help create psychological safety in some of these programs that we've been building? 
Yeah, I know you understand this because of the work you've done, but you just asked me an extraordinarily expansive question. Yeah. Um, it is a very good question, but it is very expansive. My brain is clicking a thousand miles a minute. The first thing I want to say is we have to realize that, and there was research done on this several years ago, and I have tried so hard to kind of rediscover it, and I and I have not been able to do it, but the research said that women of color especially are allowed to either be rock stars or underperformers, but not solid, reliable, valued employees. So usually, you know how this goes. You have a talent conversation and you have people folks consider to be you know, rock stars and people who are having problems performing. And then you usually have a healthy group of people in the middle who are solid and respected and valued, right? And if the work they're doing is important and they may never be the CEO, but they're still doing important work and you talk about how to keep them engaged. Well, because a lot of people in environments have so few data points around black and brown people at work, they end up kind of doing this extrapolation thing. So if I meet one person if I meet Tara and I think she's incredible, I think she's a rock star. If I meet another black woman and she's not like Tara, oh, something's wrong. Something's wrong. Yeah. Because Tara, that's what it looks like to be a great black woman performer. It looks like Tara. So it, there's, first of all, this problem, because where you started was the same people get tapped over and over again. It's the Taras yeah. who get tapped over and over again, right? Another challenge is if I'm in those kinds of programs over and over again, what's not happening for me? Yeah. Because I should be moving from being in one of these programs to being the person who's selecting other people for these programs. I should not be in these programs year over year over year. So something is not being kind of unlocked there. That That's another concern. Yeah. The psychological safety thing, here's what I'll say. I said this in the book. I say this all the time. Whenever there is toxicity or harm, right, in any given environment, the people who are least like those in power feel it first and most acutely, first and most acutely but they are not the only people who feel it. So in a development program where you might have a couple, you might have an only or one of very few right in the room, if the room is not safe in general, they're gonna feel it first and most acutely, but other people are gonna feel a lack of safety in the room too. So what I recommend people do in any of these kinds of programs is First, establish psychological safety in the very beginning for every single person in the space. And to me, that looks like establishing your guiding principles or rules of engagement. But it can also look like asking everybody in the room, what does great look like for you coming out of this experience? What do you hope and expect to experience? It can also look like helping them get to know each other fast and first 
before you go deep on certain issues that could hold risk for them or at least perceived risk, right? These are all the things I do whenever I develop or create a custom program because I know that without that safety established in the beginning, yeah. we're not going to really be able to create the kind of momentum for people that we want to uh, create. And because of my lived experience, I understand how important it is, but not everybody does. Yeah, thank you so much for unpacking all of that. It's It was an expansive question and you gave so many layers to think about in all of that. The world is getting more and more complex. Anabit chaotic, pandemic, social unrest, recession, hybrid workforce, you name it, it is here. And it's hard to navigate home and work for yourself and for your team. And what about time for you? It seems non-existent. Our recent podcast listener and reader told me the following. This has been a light bulb moment, knowing my values and then identifying boundaries to protect my values and building systems to support those boundaries. It's been incredible. When I've broken one of those boundaries, remembering my values has kept me focused. In Values First, this book can give you the tools to build those boundaries, but more importantly, how to keep them with a proven framework to identify what matters most to you and the motivation to build a sustainable plan. Values First, how knowing your core beliefs can get you the life and career you want is now available wherever books are sold. Go to thecatchgroup.com slash values first to learn more and stay connected. That's thecatchgroup.com slash values first. As we continue to talk a little bit about development, this idea of being a waymaker. Um, in the book, you talked about coaching. You talked about um, being a sponsor and a mentor. I ha have a question for you on sponsor and mentor. There's some people who think, you know, only good sponsorships or mentorships are built as organic, right? So we start to work together, a connection is formed, we follow up and all that good stuff. What is your opinion there? Um, as we, you know, talk about bias too, the people that we're mentoring often look like us, often have our same experience as us, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So how do we, how do you reconcile that and build sponsorship, mentorship as a way maker? Yeah. So you probably already know because you've been in the book that I find this notion that sponsors will tap you on the shoulder at some magical hour when they see you're ready as hugely problematic. It is disempowering for black and brown people and for women, white women too, in many environments, because what it essentially says is that you need to sit back and do all the things you can possibly imagine doing at an 11 on a scale of one to 10 in perpetuity until someone notices you and deems you worthy of their advocacy. I hate that paradigm, to be honest. And it has bothered me in the past when women, and it has been mostly white women, have perpetuated that idea that you don't ask for that kind of advocacy or support. You just go to work and be amazing and people will notice you and then select you as worthy of their you know, credibility. 
So I want to break that model. One of the reasons why I wrote The Waymakers the way I did is because I want to break that, that model. Sponsorship is critical, but the way we think about it as some kind of tap you on the shoulder exercise is an issue. It's an issue because we do not enjoy as many cross-racial, cross-gender relationships as we should. And when we don't enjoy those cross-difference relationships, you are not going to be tapped because first of all, I don't know you. I don't know much about you. I don't know what you aspire to. I don't know what you've contributed. I don't understand your results. I don't have common ground with you. And in the absence of all of those things, you have virtually no advantage. And then I'm going to ask you to sit there and wait for somebody to magically see you. So yeah, th that is an issue for me. Instead, what I'd like is for every leader to realize and recognize that they have an opportunity to lead forward with greater intention, that they have to build cross-difference relationships on purpose, that creating psychological safety is actually a job in and of itself for them to do uh, versus believing, well, I've not done anything to harm anyone, so I don't know why people wouldn't feel psychologically safe, right? All of this requires intention and courage uh, and, and deliberate action. And what is the role of a leader versus organization in building those pairings? To me, every leader should get to know all the people in their charge. They may say, I do, but they don't not really in every case, right? When I say get to know, I mean those two dimensions. One, get to know them personally so that they can identify, find common ground, which creates affinity over time and builds trust. The second is to get to know what they're good at, what they want to do, right, long term, and the results they've achieved to date. So when we have evidence of someone's competence and we have affinity or common ground, that's what increases their advantage. So that is the leader's call to action. The organization's call to action is to identify those leaders at the top of the house who they believe have way-making competence, right? Like these are leaders who pay attention to people, who see talent very broadly, who understand there's not just one way to lead or to succeed. These are leaders who are intentional about building relationships and building bridges and who have a skill for doing that. We want them to be sponsors, right? And we want to create, um, I'll say, a space where people we believe have potential to grow and people we know have capacity to waymake are together and can get to know each other. And so we cultivate leaders, we cultivate that sponsorship on purpose. We don't just kind of throw it to the wind and expect that it's gonna magically happen. It's kind of like speed dating, except not as awkward. <laughs> except not as awkward, I like it. And I love how you just described these organic relationships. It's basically like throwing it to the wind. And the wind is very biased. And those right, right. <laughs> the wind is blowing in one direction, my friend. <laughs> yes. Right? Like that's not gonna be productive. Well, it'll be productive for some people and not others, which is to say it will advantage the people it has always advantaged, and it will disadvantage the people it has always disadvantaged. If we leave it to its own devices. Yes. So this idea of is really on connection. 
and spending mm-hmm. time with people. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that relationship piece is so important at, at the end of the day, relationships still open doors to opportunity and we don't have to like it. And it certainly is not the only path forward here, but it is among the most powerful because we put ourselves out there for people with whom we share relationship. And I I love this as a way to kind of circle back to what we were talking about before, this idea of talking talent. Like how would you ever be able to talk about the aspirations of somebody on your team, in your charge, if you don't have these connections with them? Mm -hmm. Because oftentimes it's kind of through the grapevine, right? So you talk to manager, talks to person, Um, And then their stuff is rolled up to the next leader and then their stuff is rolled up to the next leader. And by the time you get it, it's like it could be a game of telephone and you don't know firsthand. So I love this idea of understanding every single person in your charge. Yeah. And, you know, some leaders might be like, I don't have time for that. And I'm thinking, well, then, you know what? You don't have time to be a leader of the future because the the talent who is here now in the emerging talent, they have high aspirations and high potential and they want to grow and they want to be seen and respected, valued and protected. And if you're not going to do it, they're going to go somewhere where somebody will. And, you know, it'll play itself out. And that's what we're seeing, right? Mm-hmm. That's what we're already seeing. One last couple of questions for you. On our podcast, we talk a lot about boundaries, how important it is to model it for your team to kind of give them permission. I want to ask you kind of twofold. First, what boundaries do Waymakers need in doing this work? And then second, what are some of your personal boundaries that you have in doing this work? Oh, man, that is a good question. Here's what I'll say. You know, there's a chapter in the book on Waymaker principles. And I love the idea of principles versus rules, as I know you've heard me talk about, um, because principles are lasting. You know what I mean? Principles guide your work in the way you do it. I think it's really important that Waymakers have principles because it helps you understand the things you will do, the things you won't do, the things you will tolerate, the things you will not tolerate. We all need a set of principles for ourselves. Um, I share some in the book, but, you know, we can each have our own set of principles. And it's kind of like a North Star. So for me, I do not do work that I don't believe will have an impact on the people I do the work for. So there are two audiences for me. It's one, the leaders who I believe can be equipped, inspired, and encouraged to lead better. And it's, you know, the people who exist on dimensions of difference who need way makers in their lives and careers in order to be successful. If there is work or something that's popping up that I don't believe is going to meaningfully support or enable either of those groups, I do not do it. So a boundary for me is knowing that I do not have limitless energy. I wish I did, but I don't. And I have to focus that energy in a really intentional way. And another boundary I have in doing this work is that I don't do, (laughs) it's going to sound really weird, but this is critical work and it's really important. And I won't do it in an organization where the CEO is not all about it. I love that boundary. And how do you know? How do do you know at this point? Well, I ask really good questions. 
Yeah. Right. Like, well, what has your CEO said about this work? Um, where do they believe you are right now at this point in your your maturation journey? What are they concerned about right now? Uh, what does great look like to them? If they can't answer any of those questions, I know there's not been any meaningful discussion about it. And, you know, I, I had somebody one time reach out to me and basically say, I'm looking to hire people uh, who are ethnically and racially diverse relative to the people who are here and I'm having a hard time. And I said, and they wanted to tap my network essentially, which I get all the time. I'm like, I am not in search, but I get that all the time. So I said, well, tell me more about your firm. And she was telling me, well, our CEO, I don't really know if he believes in it and, you know, in diversity and I'm, I do, and I'm passionate and I'm trying to drive it, but he's kind of resistant. And I said, with all due respect, there is no one in my network I would recommend go work at your firm, knowing that your CEO does not believe that diversity is important. So I hear you and I wish I could help, but I can't. <laughs> I love I love that story. The boundary. That boundary. Because of course you're not going to endorse that and give them. I'm not going to send my friends over there. No. Mm -mm. Nope. Uh. They just made a different kind of list of where not to go. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> well, I just want to thank you so much for your time and your thought leadership today. It's been a pleasure to share this space with you. And thank you so much. Thank you. I've really enjoyed our conversation. You asked great questions. And again, I appreciate the invitation. Thank you so much. And we are going to put all of the really great ways that you can connect and grab the book in our show notes. And thank you again so much for your time today. I want to thank you so much for listening to the You Belong in the C-Suite podcast. If you are enjoying this content, please remember to rate and review on Apple Podcasts. By leaving a review, you are helping others find this content. We will be featuring five-star reviews on air in upcoming episodes. Editing and support for the podcast is done by S&E Podcast Management. To get more tips and tools to help you live a life guided by your values, go to thecatchgroup.com. Keep your boundaries and take care. Mm -hmm.